Good afternoon. It's Monday the 9th of October 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link today, we have Vanessa Bailey and Mark Anderson. Uh, welcome to the programme both. Uh, we are, of course, going to start with uh, what's been going on in Israel. Uh, and, uh, well, it began, as everybody will know, with uh, rocket strikes from uh, Gaza uh, and uh, uh, the breaking down of the wall, as I'm sure Vanessa is going to be talking about in more detail in a minute. Uh, people running away from uh, a concert or a party here. Uh, and then, of course, uh, footage of uh, the wall itself or the, the fence and uh, the uh, taking of a tank. Uh, some quite sophisticated weapons uh, being used, uh, drones and so on, blowing up an unmanned uh, position in Israel here and so on. The Israeli uh, response uh, was typical, I suppose, uh, with uh, rockets and, and missiles going back into Gaza and so on. Uh, very much a question in everybody's lips has been what would be the Israeli response to that. And it looks like uh, they have decided uh, to impose a complete siege uh, on Gaza now. They are cutting off the water supply and so on. I'm sure Vanessa will have something to say about that in a second. Uh, but I just wanted to, to move on with the response from uh, the, the West in particular. Let's begin with uh, Rishi. The scenes that we've seen in Israel over the past 36 hours are truly horrifying. I want to express my absolute solidarity for the people of Israel. Now is not a time for equivocation, and I'm unequivocal. Hamas and the people who support Hamas are fully responsible for this appalling act of terror, for the murder of civilians and for the kidnapping of innocent people, including children. I've just spoken with Prime Minister Netanyahu to assure him of the UK's steadfast support as Israel defends itself against these appalling attacks. We will do everything that we can to help. Terrorism will not prevail. So that was uh, Rishi's position, and he followed that up with uh, a tweet to announce that, of course, 10 Downing Street would be carrying uh, the Israeli flag uh, projected onto it overnight. Uh, and our understanding is that all UK government uh, uh, buildings have been instructed to carry the UK as the uh, Israeli flag uh, today. Um, so here we have uh, uh, Claire Daly uh, tweeting this out. I know Vanessa is going to talk about this more a little later. Uh, that the uh, Israel, the EU are also putting the Israeli flag, projecting that on all buildings. But of course, uh, some people commenting on the one-sided nature of the response to this, because this is Tim Anderson saying that nine years ago, young Israelis uh, in, in the Negev uh, cheered as they watched the 2014 Israeli massacre of Palestinians in Gaza. Some described it uh, as the best reality show in town. Others said it was, quotes better than the World Cup. Um, so... There wasn't the same uh, response in the media uh, to that event uh, and so on. Uh, what's the U.S. position been? Well, they've decided that they are going to move weapons uh, into the eastern uh, Mediterranean. So this is Defense Secretary uh, Lloyd Austin uh, announcing that. I'll just bring the actual text on screen. Uh, the secretary reaffirmed the unwavering support of the United States for Israel's right to defend itself and provided updates on U.S. actions in response, including its direction to move the U.S. Navy aircraft carrier USS Gerald R. Ford uh, and various other uh, sh uh, ships in the uh, fleet uh, into the eastern Mediterranean in proximity uh, to Israel. And uh, Austin underscored these steps were taken to strengthen U.S. military posture in the region uh, to bolster regional deterrence efforts. Um, the response initially from Netanyahu was 
was this uh, this morning. Well, you can read that for yourselves on screen. Uh, but uh, it was this key point. I say to the residents of Gaza, leave now because we will operate forcefully everywhere. Vanessa, just in 30 seconds, if you could, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this because what, what we've really got to reinforce here is that as, with respect to Gaza, there's no way for anybody to leave. Well, apart from the fact that there is now, so I don't actually quite understand how Israel thinks it's going to besiege a Gaza where the walls have been broken down and actually territory to 25, 27 kilometers has been taken around Gaza by the resistance faction. So for me, this is an awful lot of kind of bluster from uh, the Zionist Okay, and uh, let's look at what the BBC is saying here, uh, because this morning they were describing this as Israel's 9-11 moment, uh, and I thought that was quite an interesting uh, statement. Um, this is uh, the South China Morning Post, uh, because this was a narrative that was running through all the mainstream media. Uh, so after declaring war, Israel bombards Gaza and battles Hamas fighters. So this was all about Hamas. Uh, Israel and Hamas at war. Uh, that is the position. I'm quite sure Vanessa has something to say about that in a second. Um, so, Vanessa, let's come on to your segment then, and beginning with this, uh, the Palestinians' inalienable right to resist. Well, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to try to bring it all back into context because people are getting um, bombarded on social media with images uh, and videos that are designed wherever the source is to discredit the Palestinian resistance. And in answer to what you said about this being a war between Israel and Hamas, I would very much like to correct the Western framing of this war. It is not about one faction, Hamas. It's about multiple Palestinian resistance factions forming a coalition to fight back against 75 years of occupation and oppression by Israel. So I wanted to start with this article, which was written by Louis Alday. I recommend everybody follow him on Twitter. He's one of the most sane voices on uh, the conflict itself. And this article, The Palestinians' Inalienable Right to Resist. So let's just go into that. To sit in the comfort and safety of the West and condemn acts of armed resistance that the Palestinians choose to carry out, always at great risk to their own lives, is a deeply chauvinistic position. It must be stated plainly, it is not the place of those who choose to stand in solidarity with the Palestinians from afar to then try and dictate how they should wage the anti-colonial struggle that, as Franz Fanon believed, is necessary to maintain their humanity and dignity and ultimately to achieve their liberation. He goes on to say that those who are not under brutal military occupation or refugees from ethnic cleansing have no right to judge the manner in which those who are choose to confront their colonizers. Expressing solidarity with the Palestinian cause is ultimately meaningless if that support dissipates the moment that the Palestinians resist their oppression with anything more than rocks and can no longer be portrayed as courageous, photogenic, but ultimately powerless victims. Does the world expect us to offer ourselves up as a polite, willing, and well-managed sacrifice who are murdered without raising a single objection? So I wanted to bring that in as an initial context of what we're going to talk about. Then looking quickly at what Gaza is, effectively a concentration camp that was formed in 1948 by the ethnic cleansing of 247 villages 
shown on the left with the red dots, into a concentration camp uh, 40 kilometers by 12 kilometers square, the size of the Isle of Wight, entirely um, shut down by uh, Zionist or Israeli uh, partition fencing, apartheid walls and barbed wire fencing cut off from all water sources. Um, the electricity, food, everything is rationed and supplied by Israel, so it can be cut off at any point. Um, and what we've actually seen is the breaking out of that prison camp, which is, for me, I never expected to live to see this. The following is a video from um, the Qassam Brigade, the military wing of Hamas. Uh, I'll talk a bit more about them later, showing uh, the taking down of uh, the partitioning fence. Allahu Akbar! That, sorry about that. Sorry about sorry, that. <laughs> In the last few months, we know that um, the plans have been coming to fruition. So this is not something that was planned overnight. This is something that has been in the planning for a very long time. And we'll talk more about that uh, later because there are various uh, theories circulating about the entire operation. This I just wanted to show. It's a rather wonderful piece of art by a young uh, Palestinian artist, Bassan uh, Arafat, which shows something that, as I said before, I never expected to see in my lifetime, the taking down of the apartheid wall that has imprisoned two million Gazans for years. So a few of the statements and reports that are being put out, uh, there are reports that up to seven Americans have been killed. U.S. Secretary Blinken informed CNN the IOF is sending huge reinforcements effectively to the border with Lebanon rather than to Gaza. In fact, the reservists are basically refusing to go to Gaza because they're describing it as a suicide mission. Israeli Defense Minister Gallant's evacuation of all settlements within eight kilometers of the northern border with Lebanon. And we've recently heard um, that the Lebanon forces, resistance forces, have fired more missiles uh, into that area in the last hour or so. Netanyahu is stating that Israel is reinforcing other fronts. I'm not quite sure what that entails, could also mean Syria. So nobody should mistakenly join this war. Joe Biden, it is time to let Israel attack until the end. So very belligerent rhetoric coming from uh, the US and from Israel. But I wonder if it's, um, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to ask, sorry, Vanessa, I didn't mean to interrupt it, but uh, what, do you, what do you think are the, the chances uh, that this would actually expand and accelerate? 
Uh, I mean, that's an interesting question. Certainly, it looks as if Hezbollah are going to enter the war because Israel fired on southern Lebanon and Hezbollah has always been adamant that it will only enter the war when Lebanon itself uh, is jeopardized. And it looks as if there is going to be an increase in Hezbollah activity. Obviously, as I said, this entire operation has been planned not only by Palestine, but by the entire resistance axis for some time. So I would surmise that Syria elements in Iraq, in Iran are prepared, even in Yemen actually, are prepared to enter the war if it escalates. Are the US going to be crazy enough to expand the number of military fronts that they're fighting on? Um, I really don't know. Uh, that that we, you know we have to wait to see. I, I think it's extremely unlikely. I think at the moment what we're seeing is a lot of rhetoric, a lot of uh, support for Israel um, from the various countries that are aligned with Israel. But whether we're going to see massive amounts of boots on the ground, I don't know. If we look at Robert Peston, who is, I think he's the foreign correspondent um, for uh, ITV, which is interesting because that will tie into my Syria report, he puts out a statement. Now, these days, I, I struggle to differentiate between statements from UK media and intelligence agencies. So I would suggest that this statement would be aligned with UK intelligence agencies. Uh, Hamas's attack on Israel has the potential to be as destabilizing to global security as Putin's attack on Ukraine. It's worth noting that Zelensky is saying that Hamas could not carry out this attack without Russia. <laughs> So I think we see where this is going, a war against mm. Iran and Russia, certainly in word. Um, according to government and intelligence sources, they believe Hamas atrocities were sponsored by Iran. They warn Netanyahu is highly likely to retaliate. Biden and the U.S. would try to limit the scope of any Israeli strike on Iran, but would neither want or be able to veto it. There is a risk of this crisis spreading well beyond the Middle East because of Putin's links with Iran. The West's deep concerns about Iran's nuclear ambitions and China's power struggle with America. We are in the early stages of a conflict with ramifications for much of the world. So there, I think, to some degree, you have the potential that you were talking about, but whether they will follow through on it remains to be seen. So at the moment, this was yesterday afternoon, the resistance fighters are 10 kilometers from the outskirts of occupied West Bank. So they've covered a huge amount of territory in a very short time. And I have always said for years that if this turns into a ground battle, the resistance will for sure have the advantage. The Zionist forces are quite happy to beat up Palestinian kids in the street. But when faced with armed uh, resistance forces, uh, they will vacate uh, the area. Um, so here we have uh, displays of support from uh, including Yemen and Kuwait, but from Iraq, the Cairo Tower in Egypt. And of course, the Damascus Opera House, all showing the Palestinian flag. <clears throat> Just moving on. Um, and I've come back again to Claire Daly's tweet because Ursula von der Leyen put out a tweet, obviously very similar to Rishi Sunak and even Keir Starmer, who is basically word for word repeating Rishi Sunak uh, in support of Israel. So Ursula von der Leyen put out a, a tweet saying Hamas terrorists have struck at the heart of Israel capturing and killing innocent women and children. Israel has the right to defend itself. And Claire Daly replies, who do you think you are? You're unelected and have no authority to determine EU foreign policy, which is set by the EU Council 
Europe does not stand with Israel, we stand for peace. And this is an interesting point. Not one of the governments that we've mentioned so far, Mike, are talking about peace. They're talking about taking a side in a regional war. It's quite extraordinary the levels to which we've dropped. So this is in Walla, a Hebrew website. Hamas, uh, I've put in brackets Palestine, because as I said, this isn't only about Hamas, has already won this round. The fact that the organization was able to surprise the best and most experienced intelligence in the world and mock the strongest security system in the Middle East and that it was able to control the event for long hours will not be erased from the minds of the players in the region. And that include also, of course, the enemies of Israel in the region. Then also in Israeli media, or rather this was published in Al Jazeera, Qatari media, um, various Israeli lawmakers and opposition members are blaming the programs uh, established by the far-right government, Netanyahu's extremist government against Palestinians for the terrible attacks. So they're actually not blaming the resistance factions. And here, Ofer Kassif says he warned the situation would erupt if Israel did not change its treatment of Palestinians. Moving on. I can't remember which one. So this basically I wanted to show because there are a lot of videos circulating showing um, the Palestinian resistance committing atrocities or, or allegedly committing atrocities against civilians. Why do I say allegedly? One, I condemn unnecessary violence against uh, civilian captives or against prisoners. However, I would say there are an equal number of videos that are not, of course, being amplified on social media or in Western media that show resistance fighters ensuring the safe passage of civilians and also respectfully um, bringing them into the prisons in Gaza, for example. And this is one of those uh, videos, if we can just show it, Mike. It's worth pointing out that it is Israel that is bombing Gaza where these hostages are being held. So they are putting their own hostages, or whether they're civilian or, or IDF, it doesn't really matter, at risk. And I also wanted to make a point about the videos that are circulating. One point is there are um, Israeli organizations within the military that actually are tasked with their entire strategies to infiltrate Palestinian resistance movements and to provide videos, to provide uh, scenes and events that discredit um, the resistance itself, one. And two, um, why I'm so adamant about saying that Hamas is not the only faction that is involved in this operation is because Hamas, people are quite right when they say Hamas was created by Israel. Um, there are WikiLeaks documents appertaining to that. But what they're missing out on is the normalization with Hamas over the last year and a half. Hamas were heavily involved in the destabilization of Syria alongside Al-Qaeda 
And yet in the last year, they met with President Assad. They met with uh, Iranian leadership. And in reality, those members of Hamas that were against uh, the operations of Hamas in Syria have come on board with the resistance. The Qassam Brigade, which is the military wing, were actually against uh, the Hamas political wing joining in uh, the battle in or the conflict in Syria. So it's not as straightforward as it looks. So whereas there may be factions of Hamas that are inside Israel and may also well be carrying out these atrocities and filming them and releasing the videos in order to actually discredit uh, the genuine resistance, which, as I said, would not um, comply with or endorse these acts. So I think we should be very careful about rushing to judgment. I think that's what I'm trying to say here, because the Zionist media, the Western media are going to be pushing back very hard against this and trying to portray Israel as the victim, whereas in reality, the Palestinians have been the victims for 75 years since the ethnic cleansing in 1948. And what I wanted to leave you with is the words of a young uh, Palestinian living in Gaza. She wrote this. I actually picked it up this morning. I think she wrote it yesterday, Heba Jamal. Uh, she wrote a wonderful article on the Diaspora Journal on Substack. Despite what you think, Palestinians are not celebrating death. And I'll just read from uh, a couple of sections of her article. My family's neighbors are annihilated. A whole family, the Abu Daga family with five beautiful children, were killed in a single airstrike. From my perspective, I'm talking now, in 2012, I was in Gaza during the Israeli aggression when Hamid Abu Daga, of the same family, 13 years old, was mown down Israeli helicopters in front of his house while he was playing football. So I am very in touch and very empathetic with this family. In the West Bank, settlers are being instructed to kill Palestinians on site, and we read our Facebook homepages like they are obituaries, seeing dozens of people we broke bread with disappear in a single moment. When I read posts shocked at how I am not condemning Hamas in this point in time, I feel once again inferior. My value as a human being is not seen the same. While we are in the most traumatic and gut-wrenching moments of our lives, there are some who believe now it is the time to say we have to condemn. We have to say that love trumps all. I truly goddamn wish that love trumps all, that it is love that leads revolutions. I wanted for my whole life to believe that by protesting long enough, by supporting BDS long enough, by writing long enough, I am actively making a difference. Well, I wasn't not in the way that might save my people's existence. And her final word, I do not rejoice over death. I rejoice over the possibility to live. We are simply tired and hurt and grieving, and I cannot condemn the militants if I believe, even for a second, that there might be a possibility of all of this finally coming to an end. Okay, thank you, Vanessa. Now, I wanted to uh, move on to an article from contributor to RT. Now, this isn't from RT itself, and it's in Russian, but I wanted to focus on one particular uh, point here, and uh, uh, with a bit of translation. Of course, the Palestinians, it says, also had geopolitical reasons to take action today. Firstly, this is a signal to those states in the region that have begun to think about the possibility of normalizing relations with Israel, first of all, Saudi Arabia. Uh, there's been a lot of talk lately that Riyadh could begin rapprochement. Uh, with Israel and Iran, the country that oversees the Palestinian armed groups, 
could not help but react to this. So I, I just wanted to get briefly, very briefly, your thoughts on that about uh, how much uh, influence from Iran, uh, sort of how much Iranian influence there was in the timing of this. I think uh, the timing was decided upon by the entire resistance axis. So that would include, as I've said, Syria, Iran, um, elements in Iraq, Hezbollah. Um, and I think it has more to do with the timing of it being on uh, the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the October war in 1973. But I think, yes, there are elements of the fact that, that it, it's not in the interests of the region, really, for Saudi Arabia, particularly. But it's interesting, sorry, Mike, I just wanted to say, Saudi Arabia has actually refused to condemn Hamas. It's under pressure from, from Blinken, but it's refused to condemn Hamas. It's, it's condemning individual acts, but it's refusing to come out in condemnation of the Palestinian resistance, which is interesting. Okay, thank you for that. Okay, Mark, let's uh, move over to you, James, change topics somewhat, somewhat, and uh, the World Health Organization. Yeah, continuing to keep a clo close eye on this, Mike. Uh, of course, the WHO is shooting for that World Pandemic Treaty next May, and the international health regulations go, go along right with that. Last week, I reported that the um, high-level declaration was indeed approved by the United Nations right on target on September 20th. So they seem to be on target in terms of their timing. This is the latest press release. As you know, I'm covering a lot of their events uh, firsthand. I'm registered as a reporter with the WHO, so I get all the press releases, I get all the updates, and I try to cover the virtual press conferences whenever I can. But this latest one, dated 7 October, governments make progress toward agreements, uh, excuse me, governments make progress toward agreeing amendments to the international health regulations of 05. They were originally created in 1969, of course. Progress was made this week on many of the over 300 proposed amendments to the IHR in this fifth round of intensive discussions taking place under the aegis of the Working Group on Amendments to the International Health Regulations, which includes the 196 state parties to the IHR, the European Union, and the Observer Delegation of Palestine. Particip participants discussed proposed amendments, including those in the areas of points of entry, public health measures, health documents, general provisions, final provisions, definitions, purposes, and scope, principles and responsible authorities, the emergency committee, and decision instrument for the assessment and notification of events. That includes the all-important public, um, uh, public health events of, of international concern. That's what is actually invoked when they want to proclaim another pandemic. Uh, I'll kind of cherry pick this a little bit. Some of it's uh, a bit on the dry side, but the working group also discussed a consolidated proposal by the proponent states parties of proposed amendments to Article 13A, equitable access to health products that has to do with getting the vaccines to all the countries and the rich nations help the poor nations uh, purchase the vaccines, among other things, technologies and know-how for public health response, it was agreed that efforts should continue during the intercessional period before the next meeting of the uh, World Health uh, Working Group on International Health Regulations in December. And I'll mention uh, uh, something important about that uh, right at this point. As, as James Roguski, the LA-based uh, World Pandemic Treaty and WHO researcher has, has mentioned, 
an important uh, deadline is coming up for those that are concerned about the development of this treaty and what it might mean for, for human freedom. The particular IHR amendments adopted in May of 2022, the deadline for concerned citizens to encourage their representatives to reject those particular amendments is December 1st of 2023. So there's lots of things coming down the pike. Uh, I'll mention that I have a more detailed article coming up in UK Column soon that will give viewers and readers a, a lot of options as to how to get involved in this issue, who to call, what to call about, and what's important. So that's coming up. Uh, that's an element of it that I just read. Uh, I'll mention here, um, there's a couple of quotes from delegates in this uh, endeavor. This one from Saudi Arabia, we will continue work on a range of issues in the international intercessional period before um, WGIHR6, as well as in early 2024, we're confident that we'll be able to deliver on our mandate by the 77th World Health Assembly. The, the will is there. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. That's that uh, May 2024 deadline, the 77th World Health Assembly in Geneva. And I'll go to the bottom here. I'll skip New Zealand for now. The co-chairs noted that in reference to a particular decision, it appeared unlikely that the package of amendments would be ready by January 2024. In this regard, the working group on the amendments agreed to continue its work between January and May of 2024. Uh, the Director General, that's Tedros, will submit to the 77th Health Assembly the package of amendments agreed to by the working group. Now, what's important here, as James Rogusky has pointed out, and as I'm going to be reporting uh, in that article, uh, coming up on UK column, Mike, is that um, Roguski's pointing out that they seem to be bending the rules to the point of breaking them. In other words, as of January 2024, they're supposed to stop the negotiations on the international health regulations because under Article 55 of the IHR, they're supposed to give the state parties four months or longer to review the amendments up to that point uh, before they can continue working on them. It's uh, clearly spelled out. Um, in fact, 50, Article 55 in Part 2 reads following. This is on the slides. Uh, the text of any proposed amendment shall be commuted to all states' parties by the Director General at least four months before the Health Assembly at which it is for consideration. So again, between early 2024, January and May, they're supposed to stop the negotiations and let the state parties look at what they've done so far, but they're afraid they're not gonna make the deadline. So what Rogeski and, and I are pointing out is that they're coloring outside the lines and they're bending the rules so they can keep going all the way until May and not provide that Article 55 required review, or at least they would end up shortening it. So they're kind of getting ahead of themselves and that's a very important thing to point out. Um, on this next slide, I'll just uh, kind of start winding this up. The IHR are an instrument of international law, according to the WHO, that is legally binding, they say, on 196 states' parties, including the 194 WHO member states. The IHR, in their version adopted back in 05, have been amended twice in 2014 and May of 2022, as I mentioned. The newest proposed amendments come in response to the challenges posed by the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, the 
the WHO personnel are saying that the next pandemic or pandemics is just a matter of time. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And uh, the last slide in this series for today is just a reminder, I ran this last week, that for now, readers can go to my blog, thetruthhound.com, where I announced the development last week that the high-level declaration was adopted on time at the UN General Assembly. Uh, Tedros was there. I covered the press conference at that time. And so they're, they're hacking away here, but the article I've got coming up on UK Column is a more detailed version of what you're looking at now, which much with much more in the, uh, in the way of action that readers can take and ways they can get involved. So right. um, lots to unpack, but we're watching the who, uh, the WHO very closely because they're beginning to meddle in their own rules and break their own rules, apparently, as they go along. Okay, thank you very much for that, Mark. Uh, now, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, uh, and your membership very much appreciated. Uh, you can pick something up at the UK Column shop, um, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, tomorrow at 1pm, uh, th there'll be an interview with Dr. Ross Jones. Uh, do get a look at that if you can. Of course, she is uh, from Panda uh, and will be talking COVID and so on. Uh, Susan Smith's uh, interview with David Scott is now on the website if you didn't see that last Thursday, uh, talking about women's rights in Scotland. Uh, a reminder that the MHRA Not for Fit for Purpose t-shirt is now available on the UK column uh, shop if you would like to uh, grab that. Uh, and I'd like to... Uh, Remind everybody that next Tuesday, uh, the 17th of October, 2023, we'll be running a symposium uh, on uh, 5G uh, and just very briefly run through the speakers of that. We've got uh, a professor from of uh, Radiobiology, Department of Radiobiology Cancer Research Institute at the Biomedical Research Center in Slovakian Academy of Science. Uh, we've got uh, some, an oncologist, an epidemiologist, uh, former professor at Arrivo University Hospital, uh, we've got a former professor at Technical University Munich uh, and a former member of the European Parliament, uh, a couple of former members of the European Parliament and so on. So you can uh, read through the list there and do get along for that. It begins at 7 p.m. Uh, next Tuesday at uh, ukcolumn.org slash live and the other usual places. Uh, and finally here, I just want to remind everybody uh, that Andrew Bridgen uh, is, of course, holding his uh, uh, his uh, um debate on excess deaths, sorry, uh, on the 20th of October in Parliament. And following that, uh, he will be addressing the public on Friday the 20th of October in Parliament Square. He's asking for as many people as possible uh, can, to turn up for that. So, of course, as it makes a point here, as Covey Leaks is making out in this uh, tweet, uh, it's taken nine months for the government to accept this debate. Uh, and by having it on a Friday afternoon, as they point out, it means it'll be not very well attended by MPs. That's unless people... Uh, require their MPs to uh, attend. So again, we want to encourage everybody to contact their MPs uh, and require them to appear. Uh, but uh, there is a graphic here if anybody wants to share this. Um, so that is uh, taking place on the 20th of October, Parliament Square, gather from 2 p.m. Uh, encourage everybody that can possibly get along to that to get along. Uh, okay, now last uh, week we were talking about uh, Lord Finkelstein. Uh, to, uh, speaking at the Tory party conference, uh, talking about 50-minute cities. Well, he was talking about the need for the Tory party to appeal to a broad base and not a fringe. 
Uh, and therefore, he said uh, that the Tory party should not be promoting out, what he described as outright conspiracy theories, such as 15-minute cities. And Mark, my question, or the point I was making was that 15-minute cities are far from being a conspiracy theory because they're being widely discussed in various uh, policy papers and so on. Uh, but I think you'd probably agree with that. Yes. Yeah, the, the, the propaganda gets so thick sometimes. Uh, for instance, on this uh, slide that I submitted, this next one, it's a global climate solution if I can get past conspiracy theories and NIMBYs. Yeah, it, at, at some points, they'll say that 15-minute cities themselves, to even bring them up with the slightest skepticism, is a conspiracy theory. And as you point out, Mike, they play with that concept so much. They're, they're openly discussed. Granted, some of the developers and consultants that get involved, you know, there's a lot of people that want to make a buck on this and get their bid approved with whichever city in the world so they can help design or build these 15-minute cities. And so they might be a little uh, ignorant or wet behind the ears in terms of any deeper meanings. But uh, this article that I read the headline from is from our equivalent of the BBC. That's National Public Radio, which is part of the Public Pub Corporation for Public Broadcasting, uh, otherwise known as PBS, the Public Broadcasting System. It's a lot like your BBC. We'll move on from there. And this is from the same uh, NPR article. In the 11th Andrasizement, I'm not sure what that means, Andrasizement, a middle to working class neighborhood in the east of Paris, if you walk out your front door, you can arrive at a preschool in one minute, a bookstore in three, a cheese store in four minutes, a baguette for that cheese while the bakery's across the street, isn't that convenient? Grocery store and pharmacy, five minutes, parks, restaurants, metro shops, hospitals, all within a 15-minute walk. I know this because I used to live there on a tiny cobblestone street with buildings covered in vines. This is a 15-minute city, city, says Carlos Moreno, a professor at the University of Paris uh, up in Pantheon, Sarbonne, who met me on the banks of the Seine River. hope I'm saying that right. Moreno says that in a 15-minute city, a person can access key things in their life, work, food, schools, and recreation within a short walk, bike, or transit ride of their home. Of course, that all sounds, you know, good and well. There's nothing necessarily wrong with the city design that way. Uh, it's the, as, as I've always said, it's the context that matters, the reason they're being developed and what the purpose is. Convenience, for convenience's sake, is, you know, generally liked by most people. Anyway, my former Paris street and much of the neighborhood were built in this dense way more than 150 years ago, but this old idea of areas with many amenities close by has now evolved into an urban planning model gaining popularity with politicians around the world. Moreno says because it not only improves life's quality, but 15-minute cities reduces cars, planet-warming greenhouse gases, Transportation accounts for about 20% of global energy-related carbon dioxide pollution. So carbon dioxide is a pollutant, don't forget that, with cars making up almost 10%, according to the International uh, Ed Energy Agency. In recent years, Romano has been, Moreno, excuse me, has been helping mayors put this idea to use, particularly the mayor of Paris, uh, Paris France, and Hidalgo, Paris is converting old military buildings and old parking structures into mixed-use buildings, et cetera, et cetera. And um, 
again, you know, all of that can be built in a, in a pleasing way. And uh, you'll note that one of those is a 150-year-old village. Well, back then, we didn't have high-speed transportation, so naturally things had to be closer together. Uh, urban sprawl is partly the product of modern transportation, where we can go longer distances and shorter times. So cities and living conditions began to, to be more spread out, and that's only a natural response to those phenomena. And moving on from there, I'll just uh, narrate a bit more. Now the 15-minute city is spreading, the idea of a 15-minute city is spreading with the mayors in the U.S., including Justin Bibb, the 36-year-old Cleveland mayor who made building these 15-minute cities one of his top priorities when he came into office last year. But this climate solution, oh no, is running into obstacles from zoning regimes that prioritize single-family homes. Oh, that's bad enough, but now we have conspiracy theories that have stirred up death threats, get that, for the 15-minute city ideas proponents. Now, when they talk about the death threats, they never offer any proof. It's always just take their word for it, um, absolute pure hearsay. And uh, from there, uh, we'll get into that a little more. Conspiracy theories are a growing problem for 15-minute cities. And this is in your neck of the woods, Mike. For Duncan Enright, a counselor in West Oxfordshire in the United Kingdom, the problem started at a community meeting in the fall of 2022. Enright and his colleagues have been trying to introduce a new type of bus priority lanes to congested central Oxford to reduce emissions, et cetera. At the fall meeting, Enright saw a group of attendees he didn't recognize. One of them stood up and asked about the 50-minute cities. Enright says that's the first he'd heard, heard of that phrase, 50-minute cities. But this group grew so agitated that they stopped the meeting. They were explaining all about this theory about world government via the World Economic Forum trying to institute this policy everywhere of 15-minute cities, this Mr. Enright recalls, by which they meant you would only be able to travel 15 minutes from your home. And uh, going on from there, now the language of this 15-minute conspiracy theory has made its way into some of the highest levels of the British government last week at the UK's Conservative Party conference, the country's transport secretary, Mark Harper, said he was calling, calling time on the misuse of so-called 15-minute cities. And uh, here's the quote, what is sinister and what we shouldn't tolerate, Harper said, is the idea that local councils can decide how often you can go to the shops and that they ration who uses the roads and when, and they police it all with CCTV. Now I'll summarize from there, interesting that Mr. Harper is saying that and getting involved. And it's true that there may be people going to meetings that are slightly overstating the case of 15-minute cities. Maybe movements would be controlled a lot. Maybe they'd only be controlled a little bit. But I think uh, Brian has talked about on this show some of his ex experiences going into these congestion zones where they're trying to control emissions and the rules and regulations that that brings about. And what happens is the rules and regulations typically start small and mild, and they tend to intensify over time. But this next slide talks about what the media, NPR, and many of the local officials never talk about, and that's the context. Yes, you can make things more convenient. Maybe there'll be advantages, although one wonders about the elderly walking or taking bicycles during the winter, and there might be limitations on mass transit. 
in terms of availability. There could be lots of issues that come into play. But this is the main thing right here. I made this kind of hierarchical chart, and I'll explain it very quickly. The global cities movement, we've, we've known about and we've reported on a lot. Under that, um, 1A, uh, global cities being point number one, 1A, kind of a sub part of that is smart cities run by AI. And smart and inclusive cities is the language used by the United Nations itself. And according to the UN, goal 11 of the 17 sustainable development goals is to, quote, make cities inclusive, resilient, and sustainable. And then 1B, under that, I put 15-minute cities. So 15-minute cities uh, meet all the criteria of goal 11 of the sustainable development goals. And that's the context we need to look at it in. That's where the accusations of conspiracy, but they never actually talk about that larger picture because then it makes rational sense and the media never investigates that actual context. So um, that's, the, that's always the missing point, Mike, is the context. Uh, absolutely. Thank you for that, Mark. Uh, let's just quickly move on to uh, economy here. And of course, uh, what's been going on uh, in Israel has uh, uh, affected oil prices. Uh, they are going up. So uh, I took this screenshot just before we came on air. Uh, WTI crude up 3.26%. Of course, this is going to cause inflation uh, again. Uh, but uh, the mainstream press actually are getting very excited uh, because, of course, Israel really hasn't got anything to do, as Ukraine doesn't really have anything to do with the actual state of the economy. Uh, they are very getting very concerned about bonds. Uh, and this is the Financial Times, for example, mincing machine of the bond markets uh, has spread the pain wide. The message is finally sinking in that, rate, that interest rates, that is, are staying high and central banks do not intend to reverse course. Uh, this message is starting to appear through all the financial press. The Economist rising bond yields are exposing fiscal fantasy in Europe. Uh, Italy's budget plans look irresponsible. According to this article, uh, here's another one in the Telegraph, why Britain is on the verge of a cataclysmic financial crisis, worrying parallels emerge between 1987 stock market crash and the 2023 bond sell-off. And the reason they're saying this is because they're saying that uh, in, at the time of the, uh, the uh, stock crash, uh, that there was, that was pre-led uh, by a bond uh, crisis, uh, just similar, very similar to the one we're seeing at the moment. So we can put that back on screen uh, for a second and look at some of the text. Even almost four decades later, it remains an event scarred into the memories of financial markets after a violent storm had ripped across the country, knocking down trees and shuttering roads, trading systems that still relied on brokers shouting at each other across open floors had closed early for the weekend as the damage was cleared up because the FTSE had fallen 11% in a single se session while in the US, the Dow Jones had ended down by 20%. And they're saying it became, became known as Black Monday, the worst single day of trading since the great stock market crash of 1929. Uh, as we approach October the 19th, the 36th anniversary of that fateful day, could the British and global markets be heading for replay? Too many financial experts uh, sorry, to many financial experts, there are already worrying parallels between the two eras, and they're talking about the bond markets again. Uh, so this is all uh, building up. In the meantime, the issue of consumer debt uh, continues to grow. Uh, and uh, this is just another FT article talking about U.S. consumers cutting back on credit cards as repayment charges are hitting record high. There's a sudden recognition now that uh, there is a problem uh, with the global economy which has got nothing whatever to do with 
conflicts around the world. It's something intrinsic to the uh, economy and the financial system itself. Uh, the penny's starting to drop. Um, now, uh, Vanessa, let's move back to international news uh, and Syria. Um, I think you mentioned, uh, where are we, Monday? I think you mentioned on Friday um, the attack in Homs, and I think you showed the fact that it was in the military academy in Homs. It was graduation day, so it was packed full of thousands of cadets and their families, including children, of course, women uh, who had come there to celebrate. So um, what I want to do, and I warn people that there are distressing themes in this video, but I think it's important to see because it has been completely ignored in Western media. It's barely been reported on. And the drones that carried out this attack, the technology has been supplied by NATO member states to Al-Qaeda in Idlib. In the last two weeks, we know there have been experts um, from Turkey, from France, from the UK and the US working in Idlib on the technology of these drones. So I would like to roll the video, but I do warn people it's distressing. And if they don't want to watch, they should uh, turn off now and come back in a couple of minutes. Thank you. hard video even to watch now. Um, more than 80 people were killed, including many children and women. And I just wanted to show a few of the families that were affected. This was an entire family uh, that was killed in the attacks. So the son who was graduating, his mother, his sister, and his father, and his younger brothers, which you'll see in the next photos. Uh, Lieutenant uh, Ali al Khadur. Um, so his entire family were killed in this attack. Uh, the next photo is of another uh, graduating officer and his twin sister. Both of them were killed outright in the attack. As I said, more than 80 killed, 240 plus 
uh, injured. And of course, those injured were taken to hospitals that are already buckling under the strain of 12 years war and uh, savage economic sanctions that have decimated those hospitals, crippled them. Uh, and so the death toll is actually rising because they're simply unable to cope with the influx of victims. The drone, as I said, or the drones, uh, came in from uh, Idlib to the north of Homs. So they traversed uh, quite a degree of uh, Syrian territory, but it's believed now that technology has been developed to such an extent that they can now evade radar detection until they drop down to the height where they can um, basically release their missiles. And the gunfire that you heard on the video was the soldiers trying to shoot down the other incoming drones. Um, the same day or the same night, there was another drone attack, which is the next image on uh, the military hospital, which was actually receiving victims from the academy attack. Uh, but those drones were brought down uh, by the Syrian uh, air defenses. Last night, there were um, multiple drone attacks on Western Aleppo. Those were also brought down. So drone warfare seems to be on the increase. And I mentioned ITV in the report on Palestine, uh, on, on the Palestinian operations. Um, and I suggested that they are, or, or all the media, the main media outlets, including, of course, the BBC, are directly connected to the intelligence agencies. And on the same day as this drone attack was uh, carried out against the thousands of people gathered in the Homs Military Academy, ITV, their global security editor, put out this article inside Syria's horror hospital where doctors torture suspected opponents of the regime. This is one of the most keenest propaganda pieces that I've seen for a long time, and in my opinion, deliberately published to dehumanize the Syrians on the day that UK, US, and EU proxies would carry out one of the worst massacres of the last 13 years. And in reality, I mean, it's based on Tishreen Hospital. I've visited Tishreen Hospital on a couple of occasions. I've been given a full tour of the wards, um, the building itself, seen all the developments there, and I've certainly never seen anything that is being described in the ITV article by the anonymous witnesses that they managed to find in Frankfurt. And this was actually put out by uh, a well-known Twitter commentator, particularly on Syria, and he actually says how the F they managed to turn a circular so a Syrian government circular emphasizing the importance of documenting every wounded or killed soldier, civilian and terrorist, the transfer of non-identified or of unidentified bodies to a hospital for later identification into proof that it's a slaughterhouse. Well, I agree with that question and people can freeze the next picture if they want to read it in greater detail. But basically, the government in, in issued um, instructions on the importance of documenting the martyrs and wounded as well as the dead terrorists, everyone is asked to give this issue extreme importance given the responsibilities it entails now and in the future. And somehow that was converted by ITV and one would guess the British intelligence agencies into Tishrin Hospital being a slaughterhouse. Disgusting, cynical dehumanization of Syrians, as I said, on the day they committed by proxy a massacre of Syrian civilians. Okay, Vanessa, thank you very much for that. Now, uh, we're going to end uh, with a little bit on Ukraine. And I wanted to look at how the mainstream media is trying to generate support for uh, further weapons supplies to Ukraine. 
So here's the Financial Times. Uh, this was an editorial by the editorial board of the Financial Times uh, entitled How to Lock in Support for U Ukraine in the Long Hole. Aid to, to Kiev as being a political football in the US and elsewhere. And so there's a recognition that uh, people are becoming somewhat jaded uh, to the Ukraine war and uh, the editorial board of the FT certainly wants to try to reverse that if it possibly can. Um, here is uh, an article in The Telegraph. Uh, Biden considering one, sorry, considering huge one and done Ukraine, Ukraine aid package. Now, of course, uh, he's uh, pretty much on the campaign trail now. Many people wondering how he can possibly be on the campaign train trail as he is, uh, but and whether he's really a credible candidate, which he isn't. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, in an effort to try to uh, sort of get this issue out of the way, uh, he's uh, hoping to be able to pull together a package uh, for Ukraine, which is uh, big enough to, to see him through to pass the uh, the upcoming uh, general election in the US. Uh, Politico has this uh, article, um, Biden team and lawmakers get creative uh, to keep it flowing um, with the future of further military aid to Ukraine tied up due to congressional infighting. The Biden administration and lawmakers have been seeking creative ways to keep uh, the weapons flowing. So uh, that is very much a hint that all is not well with respect to getting weapons to Ukraine. Um, but I just thought we would leave it with uh, some comments from Vladimir Putin, because as usual, it seems that that's the only place you can get any kind of uh, sanity. Uh, so let's have a look at what he was saying uh, over the weekend at Valdai. Uh, eventually they will, this is the US he's talking about, eventually they will probably find the money and print some more in order to provide more weapons for Ukraine. Uh, they printed over $9 trillion during the pandemic and post-pandemic period, uh, said Putin. Uh, so they will not think twice about printing war and spreading it worldwide, Therefore, thereby exacerbating food inflation. Uh, they will most likely do that. I think that is inevitable, uh, both on the US, the UK and the EU sides. So uh, a reminder once again, uh, coming back to the economic uh, question, uh, that the inflation we have all been experiencing actually has nothing whatever to do with uh, war, either in Ukraine or in uh, Israel, but more to do with the money printing exercise uh, that has been running for the last several years, uh, beginning with COVID, where it really ramped up. Okay, we're going to uh, more or less leave it there. But Mark, uh, we have one final slide here. You've been visiting a local library. Uh, yes, yeah, several of them, because one of the big issues here in the States is the banning of books. Now, typically it's Christian and conservative parents banning books about binary and transsexual, things like that, because there's an age-appropriate question there, plus the quality of the liter literature itself is quite poor. It's just really puerile kind of stuff. But anyway, there's other books that are under these We Read Banned Books banner and the idea is these books are supposedly taboo and you should be even more intrigued to read them because they've been held to be taboo or they've been banned at some points in history. We'll talk about it more in extra. I've got more to say, but 1984 has suddenly made the cut. Beyond the Gender Binary is shown that that was actually in another part of the library, not in the banned books display. And then there's some others there in that photo to the right, including the Communist Manifesto. So we'll talk about what it all means and some of the ironies and contradictions and extra. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much, Mark. So that brings us to the end of the news for today. Thank you very much to Mark and to Vanessa. Uh, we'll be back if you're a UK column member. 
uh, in a few minutes time for some extra. Uh, otherwise, don't forget the interview uh, tomorrow, 1 p.m. in the usual places. Uh, but we will see you 1 p.m. on Wednesday as usual. Uh, see you then. Bye-bye.